The following sermon is a recording from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. For more audio and information, please visit HolyCrossTucson.com. Um, I want you to know this wasn't planned like this. I didn't sit down this week and think, you know, what do I want to talk to our church about the Sunday after Halloween, after they all went out and engaged in, you know, this cursed holiday. I'm going <laughs> to, I want to talk about Judgment Day. <laughs> I want to talk about Judgment Day. That, that will teach them the flaming fire from heaven and God's vengeance on all disobedience. That's what I want to talk about. No, of course not. That's not we didn't plan it that way, but this is where we are. This is where we are in our series. Um, and One of the benefits of, of teaching Scripture through a book of the Bible this way is that we're striving to receive God's Word uh, close to as it was meant to be given. Uh, given to us and the instruction from God and reading through it and coming to passages that really we might not choose to teach on or even learn from, uh, but being faithful to that, and we want to be faithful to that as well. And this is exactly where we are. So where exactly are we in our series? Uh, we are seeing an ongoing conversation between the Apostle Paul and, uh, and a church, this group of Christians at this church that he planted and he loves, and he, and he gave his life to, and then he was ripped from them because of persecution, and he had to flee uh, Thessalonica. Uh, they're a brand new Christian church, new in their faith. They've got lots of questions, and Paul is wanting to encourage them. Uh, they're new believers, as many new believers would have lots of questions. What happens when you die? Uh, when Jesus comes back, what will it be like? What happens to people who don't know Jesus when they die? Um, what, what's heaven like? Uh, how are we, we to make the best use of our time on earth as we wait for Jesus to come back? This is the second letter of Paul to this church that we have that address questions like these. And the subject of Paul's introduction to the second letter is Judgment Day. Judgment Day. What is Judgment Day? It's all in this passage, really. Uh, probably the most concise place in all of Scripture where we see what Judgment Day will be like. There is an eternal, an external justice that will be exercised on all of God's creation. Uh, someday, every single human being will have to stand before God to satisfy the demands of his absolute justice. That's the Christian doctrine of Judgment Day. Those who have trusted in the good news of Jesus and the gospel of Jesus will enter at that time into eternal joy with God uh, forever in the new creation. And those who have rejected the gospel of Jesus will be eternally condemned. But there's, there's another view of Judgment Day uh, that is widely embraced in our culture. It's the opposing view uh, to the Christian view of Judgment Day. And it sounds like this, that each and every person must determine their own justice. Everyone must decide what's right for them. And that's the modern consensus. And if we remain true to our own view uh, and perception of ourself, then, then we will find true meaning in this life. And then we will find the true purpose of our lives. And so even the, even the world who may not believe in God still believes in some sense of justice and some sense of judgment. But the judgment will come on those who get in the way of you becoming the best and ultimate version of who you want to be. But this concept of justice and fate and judgment uh, it's, a, it's amazingly depicted all here. And really, it's, it's amazingly depicted for us in, in, the, in the film series, The Terminator. You're familiar with this. Uh, Terminator, right? They made a new Terminator movie. just came out last Friday. I'm all about it. I can't wait to see it. Um, 
Arnold Schwarzenegger, right? Linda Hamilton, the whole crew is back. They got everybody back. I'm all about it. Um, by the way, they, they can bring anything back from the 90s, and I'm all about it. Uh, <laughs> except, you know, super baggy Jenko jeans. Those can stay. Those can stay in the 90s. But let me, let me tell you the premise of this series, right? Just briefly. This isn't what the whole sermon's about. Uh, or is it? We'll see. Um, the premise of the, of the series, basically this, autonomous machines have taken over the future. They've killed three billion human lives, uh, and they uh, was destroy all of life on Earth, right? Uh, and there's this one man, John Connor, who rises up and starts a war with the, with the machines to overtake them, and they go to battle and try to win. And so the machines come, you know, this is 2029, 2020, it's like nine years from now, right? So you know we're getting there, it's like, wait a minute. All these futuristic movies is like a couple years away. So they send, uh, they send assassins back to the past to kill uh, Sarah Connors, uh, the mother of the yet-to-be-born John Connors. So thinking if, if they assassinate her, then John will never be born and the war will never happen, right? Uh, and there's a, there's a quote in every single one of the movies, you may not realize, because I'm a big Terminator fan. Uh, there's a quote that someone different says in all of the films. And, and this, is, this is the quote that they say. Um, the future is not set. Fate is what we make it. See, people keep coming back one after another from the future and coming back to the past and saying, the future is set, we're all going to die, and so we need to rise up and we need to fight. And they say, I refuse to believe that. I believe in the, the goodness of the human spirit. And if we simply come around this idea, then we will survive. And they're saying, I'm from the future. Pretty sure you die. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so there's that. I, I've been there. I know what's going to happen. Your fate is sealed. And, and they're coming to change that. And, you know, Arnold says, I'll be back. He comes back. And then he says, hasta la vista, baby. And, and, and me as a, as a Midwestern boy, an entire generation of Midwesterners learned Spanish for the first time. Right? <laughs> I was like... Basically, basically fluent. Terminator 2, Terminator 2 is called, does anybody know what Terminator 2 is called? Judgment Day. And do you know what this next movie is called? Dark Fate. I'm pumped, guys. I, I think someone's finally been reading their Bible. <laughs> and, and they're creating this. Maybe they're coming around to this whole idea that the future reality is real and it's set. Um, okay, Paul writes, this is what they call a dovetail, uh, Paul writes to the church, and he gives them a portrait of the future reality. He speaks prophetically, he speaks of a, of a coming reality that, that is set and real, that Jesus will return in, in a real physical reality. He will come bodily, he will come with might, he will come with a host, an army of angels, and in a surprising way, and in a way that no one can plan for, it says that he will come like a thief in the night. He will come on like labor pains. But Judgment Day is really good news. This is what, I'm, what we see in this. In a surprising way, Paul says, judgment is coming, and the fire of heaven is coming, but this is good news. And there's good news through all of this story. And I've often said in so many times that whenever God speaks to us and the words that he gives to us in his scripture, whenever we receive them, we, are, we should receive them as an invitation into joy. 
No matter how hard it is to hear and how difficult of a topic it is to discuss, whenever we're hearing from God, the purpose of this is God is inviting us into his joy. He's inviting us into good news. And this passage is filled with good news. Let me lay out three things here in regarding Judgment Day that we see. We see something to be thankful for. We see something to marvel at and something to pray for. And for all the English majors, I'm ending all these with a proposition, so just don't worry. Or, yeah, preposition, sorry. Proposition, preposition. Let's look at these together. Something to be thankful for. Here's the good news. Think about what makes a person thankful. Think about what makes you thankful, what makes you happy. Money, health, beauty, youthfulness, popularity, obedient children, loving spouses. And unfortunately, our thankfulness, our thanksgiving in our life is often tied to the changing circumstances of our life. And as those good things come in our life, we're thankful. And as those, those good things leave, we become discontent and unthankful. And, 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 and we, we wait for that, them to come back, and then we're thankful again. But Paul here tells us what he's truly thankful for. He says, I'm thankful for your steadfast faith in the midst of suffering in your life. And no matter what happens in your life and the changing circumstances, you are steadfast. You keep looking to Christ, you keep trusting in him, and not only are you trusting in him, you're actually growing. And in a time when you should actually be decreasing and being beat down, you're actually growing in faith. When all of these things are designed to rip your faith away, and he calls this an evidence of God's activity in their life. He says, you know how I know that God's favor is on you? You know how I know that God loves you? It's that when everything is designed to take away your joy and thankfulness, that's when you are growing in faith. And only God can do that. He highlights two kinds of activities that he's thankful for. An internal activity of God, and that is this growing gospel peace. Right? He says you're growing in your faith and your hope. You're actually uh, you're changing from the inside. And then he sees an external evidence of faith. He says this, this change in your heart is actually overflowing into love for others. You're being generous. You're being compassionate. You're loving. Uh, you are being kind to others. You're not giving up on people. You're being patient. And so he sees this, this inward growth and, and faith and then this outward expression of habits and action. And, God, and, and he says this is evidence of God's loving activity in your life. And what is faith? When he says, I'm thankful to God for your faith. Well, what is faith? Here's a brief definition. Faith is a relationship with God. It is a relationship of trust in God. And like all relationships, it's a living and growing and dynamic thing. We have varying degrees of trust and faith in God. You know, faith is not a static thing. It's, we often think about this as Christians, that you either have it or you don't. And if, and if hard things are happening in your life, you're thinking, oh, I don't have any faith because I'm not, I'm not feeling content. And so you want faith. And so it's like you either have it or you don't. But the Bible talks about faith as this dynamic, changing, ever-changing thing. We're actually encouraged to grow in faith. And as he sees their struggles in life, he sees that their faith isn't shrinking, but rather it's growing. And to him, it's a sure sign of God's loving activity in their life. Paul thanks God um, and not the readers for their faith. Do you notice this? He says, I thank God for your faith. He doesn't say, I thank you for your faith. He doesn't say, thank you guys. You guys are awesome. You're doing it. You're doing a great job. Keep it up. He says, I thank God for your faith. What do, you, what do you make of that? What does this mean? Well, it shows us that 
that they were objects of God's gracious activity rather than the cause of God's gracious activity. You know, God didn't love them and strengthen them because they were good, but rather he loved them and strengthened them, which produced a growing faith and goodness in their life. And so Paul is saying that all godly activity, all godly faith, all, and faith itself have their ultimate origin and beginning in the work of God in our life. And so Paul goes to the right source of his thanks, uh, the right source of his thanksgiving. He thanks God for them. What does thanksgiving have to do with how we view our future judgment day? A lot, really. It's got a lot to do with it because our only hope of escape on that day of judgment is God's activity in our life. Paul continues in this theme, we owe our salvation to God's grace and his grace alone. When judgment day comes like a thief in the night, what will we trust in in that moment to be pardoned? What will we trust in in that moment for God to receive us and not to, not to have to bear the full wrath of God's judgment and anger? It won't be our personal achievements or our accomplishments. It won't be our temperament or our personality. It will not be our cunning ability to talk ourselves out of sticky situations. It won't work there. For no one will be able to escape the righteous judgment of God. It will be the grace of God and, and only the grace of God. I wonder if it's possible that we often find ourselves so poorly at being thankful because we are so poor at viewing God's grace. We, we forget to be thankful because we forget how gracious God is. We forget to be, to be thankful because we often think on our accomplishments and achievements, thinking that we should do better and work harder rather than be consumed with the grace of God. I wonder, that it, I wonder that if we were so connected and consumed and our perspective was, was so saturated on the grace of God that we couldn't help but, but just be thankful all the time. Christians who truly understand the grace of God and activity in their life ought to be among the most thankful people on the planet. The most compassionate, the most patient, the most eager to be loving and generous. It's possible that we are so poor at being thankful because we actually believe that even a little bit in us, so we could stand before God on judgment day and he will see something good in us. Maybe we actually believe that we're just the kind of people that God would love to have in his kingdom because of our own character, our own good effort alone. You know, think of a, a recent suffering experience that you've had. You know, this could be a struggle, it could be a relationship that's really just tough. It could be a physical struggle that you are enduring, depression, frustration, sickness. Maybe you've become the victim of prejudice, abuse, discrimination, mistreatment. And often our immediate reaction when we are suffering is, God has forgotten me. God's angry with me. And surely this is happening because I'm a sinner and God is punishing me for something I've done wrong. And on the flip side of that is when things are going well with us, when we are not suffering, when we are experiencing a lot of joy in our life, a lot of times our first reaction is, this is because God is happy with the things that I've done in my life. I must have done something good to deserve a life of such joy. 
But that's really the wrong perspective, and Paul shows us it's the wrong perspective. Paul wants us to think differently when we suffer. Instead of throwing in the towel and giving up, he wants us to continue to trust in God who is faithful, who is good. Paul says in verse 5 that if we continue to trust in God through our trials and struggles, this perseverance of faith is what? It's evidence of God's favor and activity in our life. It's a hard pill to swallow. It's a hard it's a hard verse to read about. I want you to know that this is one of the hardest passages I've, I've had to preach on in a very, very long time for this alone. Paul says if you continue and you persevere and your faith grows as you suffer, that is evidence of God's activity and steadfast love in you. And there's really only two ways to view our suffering. One, that our suffering is a result of God punishing us for the bad that we have done, or to let us know that he's abandoned us and really doesn't care about us, or our suffering is God's wise, just, and perfect way of preparing us for eternal glory with him. There are, there's not a third option. When you are going through a hard time, consider the difficulty you're going through right now. There's really only two ways to look at it. One, God hates you. Or God loves you so much that he's preparing you for the eternal weight of glory to be with him one day. Which, which is your view? Which is it? Which do you believe? You see, our current view of suffering reveals what we really believe about God's attitude towards us. God, what do you think of me? Do you like me? Am I okay with you? Then why are these things happening to me? You see, is God ultimately against us or is he for us? If he's for us, then why doesn't he just give us a life of great pleasure and comfort? And Paul says, well, we're destined to suffer. But that suffering will be the result of one of two things. One, it is, it is God's wrath and hatred of us, or it is his preparation for heaven. If God is for us, this is what it means, that he will use all of our suffering as a way to bring about all of his good plans for us. Our suffering will make us more like Jesus, the son whom he loves, and our suffering will bring a stronger faith and a stronger love for God and a stronger love for others. But if God is against us, then the worst moments of your life today on earth and your greatest suffering will seem like paradise compares to what happens to people when God returns and the flaming fire of heaven consumes them with the full vengeance of God. Isn't Judgment Day a really fun topic? Don't you love it? So what's the cause of your suffering? And how do you know what the cause of your suffering is? Is it God's abandonment of you, or is it God's love for you? How do you know? We'll pick up that next week. No, I'm kidding. We'll <laughs> I'm not going to leave you hanging. Paul doesn't leave us hanging either. So what is the cause? Paul says it comes down to what we marvel at. It comes down to what we ultimately trust in. And this is the next thing we see. Something to marvel at. 
And that something is really someone. The someone is Jesus that we marvel at. And when Jesus returns, his people, Paul says, will, will, will look at him and marvel. I love this word. I love how he describes this. Now, of course, we will marvel, but I, I want to talk first about what you think that means, and then I'll tell you what I think he means. What you think, of course, we're going to marvel, right? Uh, the heavens will open, and Jesus will descend from the clouds, and he'll have with him uh, uh, the angelic host, an army, uh, to, to establish the new creation. And I imagine that you will be stunned at this sight. The aesthetics of it purely, you will marvel at it and you'll say, wow, this is amazing. What a sight to see. And that's the way you think about marveling at it. But that's not what Paul is saying. That's not why we'll marvel. I'm sure we will marvel at that, but that's not really ultimately what we marvel at. What is it? We will marvel at the glory of Jesus in his people. We will marvel. To marvel at something is to be utterly astonished, to be dumbfounded. But it's a kind of astonishment that leads to admiration and joy for Jesus. It is marveling at him and saying, I cannot believe that, I get, that you have done this for me. That I get to be with you and I'm not going to be punished, but I'm going to be pardoned and I'm going to be the, re the recipient of the fullness of joy forever. Paul says what makes us marvel at Jesus really comes down to the gospel. You see, judgment day is a day, a day of judgment in the future that is yet to come. But there's also a judgment day that has already happened in the past. It is the judgment day that started at the cross. And do you know what happened at the cross? It was there that Jesus was judged, not according to his deeds, but according to ours. It was there that God cursed his son to set us free. It was there on the cross that, that our, our, our sins were nailed to the cross, not part of them, but, but all of them were nailed to the cross. It was there that Jesus was declared guilty, although being fully innocent, so that we could be declared righteous, not based on any good deeds we have done, but based on the good and perfect righteousness of Jesus offered graciously to sinners. And we will marvel on that day when Jesus comes, not because the sight is utterly stunning, but we are astonished at his goodness to us. The only way that we will be able to marvel at Jesus when he returns and have admiration and joy is, is to trust that we are worthy of the kingdom of God, not because of anything we've done, but because Jesus was judged instead of us. And we will say, that's amazing. We will say, that's, there's no way. You've got to be kidding me. And we will marvel. And we will be stunned. And we will be astonished. And that will lead us to admiration and joy. Do you see the glory of Jesus? This is so interesting. The glory, what is the glory of Jesus in this passage? It is not that he is glorious. The glory of Jesus will be manifested in his people. The glory of Jesus will be in his people. So his glory and the praise that we will see will be the work that he has done for you and for me. If our rest is not in Christ's work for us, then we must take that job ourselves. We must figure out a way to save ourselves. 
all those who find their hope in the gospel, well, it's clear from scripture that God is a righteous judge and he and, 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 and we will be judged according to the work of Jesus for those who hope in Christ. But those who don't find their hope in Jesus, God's a righteous judge. And he will judge them according to every word they've ever spoken, every thought they've ever had, every deed they've ever committed. He will judge them righteously by the life that they have lived. Or he will judge them by the life that Jesus lives. And he says anyone who does not have their hope in, in that judgment of Christ, they must be their own savior. We must be our own savior. How do we save ourselves? Easy. Do everything that God has ever told you to do. It leads us in despair. When we look at the cross, when we look at the word of God, we are meant to see God's demands. We are meant to see his, uh, his commands. We are meant to see his way to a life that is everlasting and good. And then we are meant to feel hopeless. We are meant to feel despair. We are meant to look at the law and feel crushed by it. And then we are meant to see Jesus on the cross as our only hope. We all need a savior. Paul makes it clear. And if you're hearing this message today, this is what this means. No one will ever be good enough to earn God's pardon for punishment. But it also means that no one is bad enough to be beyond the reach of God's grace. We are all far worse than we could ever imagine, but God's love is far greater than we could ever hope for. It's all here. It's all good news. All who look to this Savior and marvel at what he has done for us, seeing punishment due to us but placed on him instead, are treated as if we've never sinned and loved by God as if we've never done anything wrong. And that is something that we should surely marvel at. Here's how the, we might practice marveling at Christ. I've shared this quote. It's been a couple years, though, and so I needed to bring it back from Martin Luther. It's clear that we need to entrust our sins to Christ. Here's what it looks like to marvel at God in this way. For in God's word, God places your sins on Christ. So here's what you should say to yourself. I see my sins on Christ. So my sin is no longer mine. It belongs to another, for I see it there on Christ. It's a great thing to be able to say, my sin is not my own anymore. My sins have been transferred to Christ, and now they are his responsibility. Can you say that? Can you rest in that? This is what happened on the cross. This is what it looks like to, to practice the marveling of Christ and what he did for us on the cross. To see our sins truly taken by Jesus and nailed on the cross so that there is, the judgment has been rendered and we have been declared innocent based on the righteousness of Christ and he is declared guilty because of our life. It is really a swap. It's a substitute in our place. And so do you see that our, our view, our present view of our, of our present suffering and struggles are corrected by the cross? They're corrected. They are adjusted. When we are having a difficult time, whatever that might be, none of us are spared from it. What is your suffering? The cross adjusts and corrects that suffering. It does not mean that God has abandoned you or he hates you or that he's punishing you for a past sin. It means that in his good wisdom, beyond what I can fully understand, he's preparing you. 
to be more like Jesus. He's preparing you for the weight of heaven. He is preparing you for a future with him. And he's using these suffering where, where Satan means it for evil. He's using it for good to bring about all of his plans for you. I don't know how. I can't possibly answer that for you. But we believe that it's true because he said so. No longer do we see our suffering as God's anger, but we see our suffering as good, God's good process of bringing about his plans for us. But I know when you are in the midst of suffering, what do you want? You want all, in, in all the world, all you want is to be rescued from it. But do you know what the Bible says? For God did not spare his own son. How would he spare us? But if God has given us all, thing, all things to his son, what will he withhold from us? You see, God will not rescue us from suffering because that wasn't the destiny of his son and it's not our, our destiny either. But eventually that will have an expiration date, our suffering, and we will be rescued, utterly rescued, utterly new, utterly rejoicing and, and marveling and admiring what God has done. You see, these Thessalonians got it. They, they got it. Do you get it? Do you get it? Do you understand that? They got it. They're being persecuted. Many are dying. They're suffering. And Paul looks at them and says, how is this possible that you're still trusting in Jesus? This is God's act in your life. No one else could do that but God. I am so thankful to God for you. Paul's encouragement of these, Thess of these Christians leads him to pray for them. And that's really the best way to end a discussion like this. I love that he does this as he, as he is thankful for them and he talks to them about Judgment Day. Then he says, okay, I need to pray for you guys. I need to pray that you will continue. I need to pray that God's power will continue to rest with you. So we have something to pray for as well. You see, everything in our culture is telling us to build our identity and hope on something other than Jesus. Our looks, our money, our success, our, our youthfulness, our likability, our achievements, our record, whatever it is our confidence, it's almost impossible. I mean, it really is almost impossible to not go along with it. We fall into it every day. It is almost impossible to not go along with everything else that the world runs towards for comfort. But I say almost impossible because God has given us a way out. And here's the summary of Paul's prayer for them and for us, that they would truly know and that they would rest in the judgment that's already happened at the cross. And they would truly believe it and they would truly rest in it. We rest in God's grace so much so that we do not fear any trial that comes our way. Because God is for us, not against us. So much grace that our struggles don't weaken us, but our struggles strengthen us. So much grace that our struggles make us rest in Jesus more, love people deeper, and hope against all hope, no matter what circumstances come our way. You see, faith is in God is not a technique to master, or a formula to carefully execute. Or else Paul would pray for those things. He would say, let me give you the three things you need to do. But that's not what faith is. What is faith? Faith in God is foremost a pouring out of our soul to God for help. It's not something to master. It is, it is not a strategy to, to carefully execute. 
Faith in God is standing before God, recognizing our helplessness and crying out for his mercy and doing it at every moment of the day. That's what faith is. God is working in ways that you cannot possibly see. I promise you. He is working in ways that you can, pro- that you can possibly not see. And he's working in ways to let you know that he, he will never abandon you, but rather he will work all of these things out for the good of those who love him and who are called according to his purpose. Do you see in this passage, we see this great flip-flop that will happen when Jesus returns. All those who are afflicted will be comforted, and all those who are comforted in their own work will be afflicted. God promises that if you are hurting now and persevering in faith, that that suffering will end. And he promises now that if you find your hope in your own accomplishments, that comfort will also end. This is why Paul prays exactly for this. That we need, what we need most is not character, but what we need most is a deeper cry of faith, a deeper cry for help. He prays for the preeminent goal of the Christian life. And what is that preeminent goal of the Christian life? That we would learn to utterly believe that the judgment of Christ in our place is everything that we will ever need for the fullness of joy in this life, and in the next. And so Paul says, that's what I'm going to pray for, that you know Jesus this well, that you delight in him this much. He prays that we would rest in God's relentless pursuit of his plans for us, no matter what circumstances come and go. He is for you. He has not abandoned you. Trust in him. Let's pray.